Well, good morning, he said. Take your Bibles, if you will, this morning and go to Luke chapter 2. Let me just say as you're going there that I counted a, uh, and I mean this sincerely, a real honor to be asked to speak in chapel. And uh, and I I certainly don't take it lightly and I I appreciate very much the invitation. And um, I trust that what I have for you here, what the Spirit of God, the Scriptures have for you, will be meaningful. Luke chapter 2, and I'd like us to consider this morning a portion, a narrative from the life of Christ, very familiar, recorded only for us here in in Luke. It's not recorded in any of the other Gospels. And it is the account of Jesus' visit to the temple when he was a boy, when he was about 12 years of age. You're familiar with it. By the way, I have with me the uh, trusty, dusty King James I decided to go ahead and uh, use it. I like the ring of the King James, and I know that's not particularly the criterion by which you ought to decide what Bible to use, but uh, it it is interesting, by the way, uh, he says, and this is an unsolicited and unsought commercial, but uh, the, uh, the King James translators did, in fact, translate that part of the concern they had as translators was to put it in uh, strong uh, literary form, and uh, that was not necessarily the case with with uh, the more the translators working with the more uh, more recently. So, for what it's worth, um, by the way, you know what? There is, he says, <laughs> there is a new. I, I, I just came across this. There is a new study Bible. If you're in the market for a study Bible, and it's called the. Uh oh. The Believers. I think it's called the Believers Study Bible. And uh, where's Melinda? Is that right, Melinda? I just saw the. the uh, it uh, is a study Bible with notes put together by a number of contributors. Uh, one among whom is uh, uh, our own president, Dr. John MacArthur. So it's it's really a very worthwhile study Bible put out by Nelson. I think it's brand new, and uh, it's. Uh, it is a new King James. So I'm just saying maybe if, if, if you'd like to uh, invest in a new study Bible, you might think about that. Uh, but that's not what I'm here for. So if you will, Luke chapter 2. Now let me, let me just say that the reason I, I thought it would be profitable, this is a, very, this is a favorite portion of mine. I enjoy uh, studying the life of Christ. And, uh, and uh, this is a portion out of that. Our Lord's life on the earth, as I say, it's, it's recorded only for us here in this uh, in this gospel. Uh, it occurs to me that what's going on here in Jesus' life is perhaps unusually pertinent to your life, because Jesus is about in His life where you are in your life. That is, in Luke chapter two, you have the account of Jesus at the age of twelve. Now you might say to yourself, "Wait a minute, uh, you know uh, that's that's sixth grade or something," and uh, we've gone past that. But the fact of the matter is, and most of you are familiar with this, that in, in that culture, uh, a boy came into adulthood at the age of about 12 or 13. And, and Jesus is passing into adulthood. As a matter of fact, and if you look in verse uh, 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 42, it says very, uh, very plainly that he was 12 years old. Now, you remember that this is the record of Jesus going up to keep the Passover with his parents. This is where he tarries behind and worries his parents. And you remember the story, and we'll go through it in just a bit. But you need to understand something about the the cultural setting, I think. And the fact is that there is some reason, there's some significance to the fact that he just came 
uh, he's just 12 years of old uh, of age. I mean, Luke tells us that, and it must be significant. And I think it is very definitely significant because, again, in in Jewish culture, when a boy was born, he was not a son. I think you're probably familiar with that. But a boy who was born to a family was not a son. He was a he was a boy. He was a child. But it would be entirely inappropriate to call a, a boy before the age of about 12 or 13 a son, a weos, because he was not a son. He was a boy. But when he came to be about 12 or 13 years of age, he went through a, a, a process uh, by which he became a son of the commandment. Or in sort of corrupted Yiddish, uh, Jewish or Hebrew, what, what, how do you say son of the commandment? You tell me. Anybody? Bar mitzvah, right? You, you went through a bar mitzvah. And to be a bar mitzvah was to be a son of the law. You'd come to be a son. Now, the point is that once you pass that, and, and, and you will read different things. Some will say it happened when he was 12, some 13. And it seems to have been uh, not a certain day in the chronological life of the boy, but rather a certain stage where his father thought he had come to the place where he could assume and accept adult responsibilities. And at that point, he became a, a, a huios, a son. And a son was an equal. He was the equal of his father. And the point is that at that point, he, he, he could accept, indeed, adult responsibilities. Now, now, the reason that's important in this passage is this, that up until, you remember how in the days of Jesus, the temple was divided into three broad regions. As you came into the outer temple, you came into the court of the Gentiles. And uh, the Court of the Gentiles was a huge area, some 14 acres, the size of our whole campus across the road, basically. And uh, it was, it was a, a large area, and uh, it was just that. It was the Court of the Gentiles. This was an area where anyone could come, even a, a Gentile, even someone who was uncircumcised but it was interested in the things of God. He could come and participate to that level. That was the Court of the Gentiles. But as you came past the Court of the Gentiles... You walked up a small uh, uh, number of steps, and there was a low balustrade or banister. And on that banister, by the way, all the way around the, the, the banister, was written uh, uh, something to the effect of, let no Gentile enter beyond these portals or something like that. And beyond that was the court of the women. Now, Jewish women and children, and that's what's relevant here, could go that far. But then there was a huge gate, and as you went past that gate, you came into the court of Israel. Now, that, the court of Israel is what you think of when you think of the temple. The, the, uh, the altar, the huge altar, and then beyond the altar, the uh, labor where the priests cleanse themselves, and then beyond that, the, court, the, uh, the temple itself with the holy place and the most holy. But the point is that Jewish women and children, that is, even boys under the age of bar mitzvah, were not allowed to go beyond the court of the women. So it seems, if we can reconstruct this and understand what's going on, and I think it's important to the flow of the thought, and I think it's also important because I want to apply it to your lives, it seems that Jesus had just become a son of the law. In other words, the point of the fact, that the point of making mention that he was 12 is he was coming into adulthood, and special privileges now became his, and perhaps most important among them for purposes of this narrative is the privilege to go in to the court of Israel. And if you can imagine Jesus, year after year, coming up as a boy, now growing up, and year after year, his parents undoubtedly would have been faithful to the command to come to Jerusalem and uh, for the feast and so on, and they would have come up year after year. But you know, year after year, Joseph and Mary 
and, uh, and, and, and Jesus, and, and of course as time went by, others uh, of Jesus' siblings and so on, as they came up, Mary would have taken Jesus by the hand and Joseph would have gone on into the temple. Jesus would not have been allowed. But now you see, this year, for the first time in his earthly life, for the first time in, the, in, 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 in his life upon this earth, or the first time in his incarnation, 12-year-old Jesus drops the hand of his mother Mary, as it were, and takes his father by the hand, and together they go for the first time into the court of Israel, singing as they go, by the way, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. And they come together, and Jesus watch, uh, watches what goes on for the first time. He sees the slaying of the animals. Now, we'll come back to that, but I want you to picture uh, that, that stage in Jesus' life. But see, here's the point, uh, or here's a point of application, perhaps. It seems to me that bar mitzvah, the bar mitzvah process was what sociologists call in the Hebrew culture their the rite of passage. The, the rite of passage by which you left uh, childhood and, and came into adulthood was bar mitzvah. You know, in our culture, uh, if you don't mind the rather shaky parallel, uh, if there is a rite of passage in, in our modern Western culture, it's college, isn't it? You leave home a child, you go off to college, and you come home an adult. That's the idea. Now, there have been parents severely disappointed in that regard, I'm sure, but, uh, but that's kind of the idea. You're going to go off and you're going to make decisions about what you're going to do with the rest of your life. You're going to choose a vocation, perhaps. You're probably going to find a life's partner. And I, I don't mean to overdo the parallel, but, but the point is simply that in a significant way, the college experience becomes a rite of passage. It, it really is in our society. And uh, by the way, that's been much corrupted. In, in the minds of many, it's a time to go off and so, so to, to go off away from home and throw off all the shackles and the restraints and and to uh, you know live a life of some some debauchery and then and then hope you know after you sow those you know after you sow that seed the, the crop doesn't come in and all that sort of thing. But uh, but having said that, though, even for you, we trust that's not the spirit here. But even for you. The, uh, the college years are a rite of passage. So I'm saying that I, I think it's fair to say that Jesus is at about the stage in life that you are. And he's looking forward to his adult life. And, and I mean, consciously, that's what's going on. He's going through. That's the reference there. He's 12 years of age. And so he's going through that portion of his life where he's going to, he, he's, he's going to uh, make important decisions and so on. Now, in that regard, let me say one other thing, and I, and, and, uh, I realize I always I, you know, spend too much time trying to introduce something, but, but let me just say real quickly, maybe not all that quickly, to be honest with you, but uh, <laughs> this is a passion with me. Uh, there's one other thing, because I, I rather suspect, not, not, think about it, folks, I rather suspect that as I say that, as I say that there's a parallel between what Jesus is going through and he's making decisions and he's planning his life and thinking about what life holds for him, and I say there's a parallel between that and what you're going through, I rather suspect that many of you are saying to yourself something like this, well, yeah, but it really the parallel breaks down because he's God. He knows the end from the beginning. He doesn't have to worry about anything. Everything's set in place for him. And that's what I want to talk to you about here for just a minute. I think to understand what's going on here, if there's any portion of Jesus' life, if there's any portion of the gospel that absolutely demands a respect for the kenosis, this is it. And what do I mean by that? Well, again, and if you've taken me, uh, if, you, if you've sat and, you know, we've gone through this maybe in, in survey or life, cry words and words or something, why, well, uh, you know, write home quick here and come back to me in a few minutes because I'm going to go back over some, some of the same stuff. But, uh, 
I, I, I really believe that, that Christians, by and large, have in the very noble and worthy uh, interest of, of honoring and preserving and protecting the doctrine of Jesus' deity, that we have rather significantly neglected the doctrine of Jesus' humanity. And the mystery of Scripture is that Jesus was the God-man. He was not God dressed up like man. He was not God pretending to be man. To whatever degree you are man, He was that. Whatever limitations are intrinsic to humanity, He took those limitations upon Himself. Now, you, that, that may be a, a, a point of some controversy, and maybe in your mind there you're taking a little bit of umbrage here with me, and that's all right, although I think I'm right and you're wrong, to be perfectly honest with you. But, uh, no, but the fact is, uh, I, I just think that, that all too often we read the Gospel accounts and, and we read it as if Jesus were play-acting. You know, I, I, I was discussing uh, <clears throat> this with someone not too long ago. I don't remember who it was for sure. I don't want to offend anybody in the room, of course. But, uh, and uh, he was arguing basically that, uh, or not arguing, but he was suggesting that, that uh, you really do despite to Jesus' deity if you suggest that there was anything he didn't know. Now think about that. Do we do some sort of despite to Jesus' deity if we say that he was not, there was something he didn't know? Well, you say, well, wait a minute, Jesus was God. We know that one of the attributes of God is omniscience. Omniscience means he knows everything, so Jesus knew everything. Yes, he did, and yet he didn't. And again, this is the mystery. I, 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 I am happy with the standard canonic formula. Jesus did not cease to be God. He did not surrender any of his attributes of deity, either partially or temporally. Jesus was God, very God. He never ceased to be God. But I think it is sufficient. I think it is accurate to say, and this is the canonic formula, that in his, in his incarnation, in his kenosis, when he came to this earth and took upon himself humanity, Jesus surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. And so there are things that Jesus didn't know. We know that there were things that Jesus didn't know. He tells us in Mark 13 that he doesn't know the time of his second coming. Now, there's some debate about the construction of that verse, but that seems to be the simplest understanding of it. When Jesus went up to raise Lazarus from the dead, do you recall how that he, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he told Martha that he was going to do it. Remember, Martha said, if you'd been here, my, my brother wouldn't have died. And she said, I'm the resurrection. He's going to live again. And then he said, where did they bury him? Jesus didn't know where the grave was. He had to ask. He had to be directed to it. Now I say again, all that just to make the point that Jesus, when you read the stories of Jesus, uh, I always say this in my classes, so many of you have heard it before, but there is a, there is a this, is, this is sort of proving my point by way of uh, exaggerated contrast. There is a, an apocryphal gospel. It's absolute fiction. It's nonsense. Uh, it's full of silly stories that, that are absolute lies. But that apocryphal gospel called the Gospel of Jesus' Infancy says that when Jesus was born, as his mother was wrapping him in swaddling clothes and about to lay him in the manger, Jesus looked up at his mother and said, Handle me carefully. I'm the Son of God. You wouldn't want to drop me. Now, you see, now think about that. The fact of the matter is, you don't believe that. You don't believe Jesus said that. Because why? Because Jesus had to learn to talk, didn't he? He couldn't talk when he came out of the womb. He had to learn to walk. It's my persuasion that he had to learn who he was. 
I believe that through the stories his mother must have told him about his miraculous birth, through his... Remember now, I always hasten to say at this point, Jesus was man, but he was not fallen man. He was everything that man is. He took upon himself humanity in all of its limitations, but he did not take upon himself fallen humanity. So even as a human being, his mind must have been unbelievably sharp and how he must have ingested the Old Testament. And he must have seen himself on the pages of the Old Testament. And I believe that he, he very early on as a little boy discovered who he was. I always have this picture of him sweeping up one afternoon in, the, in, in a carpenter's shop and turning to his little brother James and saying, James, you know, I was reading the Old Testament day and I had the most, I'm God come in the flesh. You know, and I, James might have thought, oh, well, that's a significant claim. But the point is, uh, uh, and I, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be, I, I really think Jesus had to discover that. And I think this is an important part of it. So I'm going to come way back. And that's going to come way back. Here you have Jesus coming to the temple. It's during a time when he is, is, uh, he, he is now fully aware. And I, could, I think I could demonstrate this for you through other considerations. But just for sake of the discussion here this morning, if you will, let me, let me assume this. That Jesus is fully aware of who he is. He knows he is God come in the flesh. He knows he is the Messiah. There is one thing that he knows nothing about, nothing whatever, and that is the Father's timing as to his messianic ministry. Jesus probably anticipates, I'm soon to become an adult. Once I become an adult, it only makes sense that I should plunge into the messianic ministry, that I should offer myself. But that's not God's timing. I think maybe that's part of what compels Jesus. He comes up to the temple. But we'll come back to that in a moment. But the point is, Jesus now comes to the temple. He knows who he is. He, he is thinking about the rest of his life and how he should order it and what God has, the Father has for him and so on. And in that regard, he's pretty much where you are. Now, there ensues here a story. It's a, it's a fun story. It's a homey story. It's a, it's a story that gives us, you know, by the way, from the time Jesus at the age of about two goes down to Egypt with his parents. He's carried down, or comes back from, from Egypt with his parents, is what I want to say. Remember when he was a boy, I'm sorry, when he was born, there was a threat in his life by Herod. He fled, to, his parents took him to Egypt, and then they came back and settled in Nazareth. Now, he's somewhere around two years of age or less there. From that time, from the time he settles in Nazareth as a baby, or his parents settled with him in, in Nazareth as a, as a baby at the age of a, less than two, probably, until he goes forth to be baptized of John. For those, that entire time, the only glimpse you have is right here. This is the only glimpse we have of Jesus between infancy and full adulthood when he goes out to be baptized by John. Well, this is an instructive thing, and I'm going to come back to it. There ensues here this, this delightful story of Jesus and, and, and going with his parents to the temple and so on. And I'm going to suggest to you, this is where I'm trying to take, to you, uh, take you, that in the, in the, in the narrative, there, we are given insight and hints into, into what dominated and, and uh, uh, the mind of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus. And I would suggest that these things ought to dominate us. That's what I want you to see. It seems that he was gripped and consumed by, by uh, you know, three, three things here that I want to lay before you. And so let's just begin, it, uh, begin there in verse 42, if you will. I'm going to go rather hurriedly through the narrative. I'll have to explain some things. It says, When Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, now this is the feast uh, of Passover, and they come up, 
usually for several days. And so when it says they came up after the custom of the feast, it means they came up according to the standard con uh, conventions, which is you would go up several days before and then you would keep the feast in Jerusalem and then you would return home. So when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. Now you need to understand something about that, folks, because it sounds like one or two things, one of two or maybe both are true. Either that Jesus was horribly rebellious or the parents were unspeakably careless. You know, they leave their, their kid back behind. Well, understand something about this. Understand, first of all, that they're traveling from up in Galilee. Now, you probably know that in between uh, Judea, of course, and Jerusalem are down here in the south, and Galilee is up here in the north, and in between Galilee and Judea are, lies Samaria. And Samaria was despised by the people of Israel, and so the Jews refused out of some, uh, uh, some really, uh, I think, wicked sense of self-righteousness, they refused to even set foot on Samaritan soil. So when they would make the trip they, from Galilee... They would, they would go by way of Perea. Now, what they would do, if you can picture it in your mind, they would simply go down the, uh, the, the Valley of Road to the Beitshan Ford. They'd cross over the Jordan River, and they'd walk down on the eastern side of Jordan. By so doing, they avoided Samaritan soil because Samaria, the border of Samaria, was, was the Jordan. So they'd walk down Samaritan soil. They'd get down to Jordan. They'd reford the river and then make the trek up the Jericho Road toward Jerusalem. Because that trip was went over into eastern Jordan, or I'm sorry, over into e on the east side of Jordan, it was dangerous. You have the desert over here. You have the Arabian Desert. The desert is populated by uh, robbers and brigands and so on. And as a consequence, it wasn't safe to travel alone. And so it was. the convention was that they would gather in various places. Whole villages sometimes would gather together, and all those making the pilgrimage, all of those who were going to go up to Jerusalem this year for Passover, would travel together. You'd travel together because it wasn't safe to travel alone. And then uh, there was sort of a convention even within that because usually the standard thing was that the men who were, of course, in charge and gave leadership, they were out front leading the way, and then behind were the women carrying the baggage. And uh, so you had the, the men up here, and you had the women back here, and the kids, you see, just be kind of back and forth. So when they set out, and the other thing is, see, because the question arises, I think, rather spontaneously, why in the world would they leave Jesus behind? Well, the other thing you have to understand is Jesus was sinless. You know, Jesus had never, and, and I think he's sinless in this. Clearly, he's not going to sin, but he's going to be sensitive to what he perceives to be a higher calling. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just strange to his parents. His parents, the point is that Jesus, raising Jesus was a pretty easy job. They didn't have to worry about much, I imagine. Uh, maybe I've mentioned it to you before, but I've all, again, I always think about James, what it would be like to be Jesus' little brother, you know. The Bible tells us that his brothers didn't believe him uh, until after his resurrection, and that may have been partly just born out of resentment toward Jesus. It would be, Jesus would be a hard act to follow. How many hundreds of times do you suppose Mary grabbed James by the shoulders and gave him a shake and said, you know, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? You know, that would be, that would not be easy is what I'm saying, but... Uh, so having said that, uh, the, the, the point is simply that Jesus, uh, usually uh, they could count on him, that he would be very sensitive to be there. So Jesus has, has gone off, as you know, to the temple, and Mary and Joseph set out. And if you look there in verse 43, it says, they, Jesus uh, tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it, they supposing him to have been in the company. See, each one thought... Mary undoubtedly thought Jesus was up with Joseph, or Joseph back, thought he was back with Jesus, or maybe with some other kids or something. 
And so they went a day's journey. Now, you would travel, you would start early in the morning before the sun broke. And then you would travel all day long and you would, you would stop and settle somewhere for the night once the sun went down. Now, again, it's nighttime. You see, they can't travel back. That's the point. Mary and Joseph are, are they've got to, I'm sure they're panic-stricken. It must have been a sleepless night. But it really would be the, the, just absolutely foolish to try and set out back in the dark. So they wait until the next morning. And they return the next morning... Verse 44, you see they were a day's journey away. They returned the next morning. It would take them a whole day to get back. So now they're back in Jerusalem. It's late at night. And they, uh, they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they uh, found him not, they, they turned back again to Jerusalem. I got ahead of myself there. That was uh, seeking him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance there uh, on the journey. And then they found him not. They went back to Jerusalem seeking him. And look at verse 46. At, and it came to pass that after three days, in other words, literally the Greek says on the third day, a day out, then they've got to spend the night, a day back, it's, it's, it's dark, and then the next morning they go looking for him, and sure enough, they find him. They find him in the temple. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And it says there that all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Now, let me say that I start out to say that it seems to me that in this narrative there are there we get a glimpse of what animated uh, Jesus uh, Christ, and and as a boy coming into adulthood, what was it that gripped him and shaped his life? Well, certainly to begin with, he was consumed, and this is very very simple, but I I, I think it'll work. I, he was consumed with a desire for the word of his father. Now. You have to understand what's at stake here. Again, a little bit of background, and forgive me for all this, but I think it helps to reset the scene of what's going on. During, you, you realize that throughout Palestine, there were men who were professional teachers of law. We call them rabbis. Uh, what qualified you to be a rabbi was not that you had, you had gone to school and got a degree, uh, but rather that you had students. If you had students, you were a rabbi. And uh, you basically, usually there wasn't a, any place where you would meet. Uh, you would just, you would go from place to place. And as I've told some of you before, the rabbi usually would find a rock and he'd position himself there. And the, the disciples would simply range themselves at his feet. And the, uh, the, the phrase of the day was that you powdered yourself in the dust of the rabbi's feet. Rather what you're doing today. But, yeah. but at any rate, um, I mean, take it too far. But that was, that was how they actually, that's how they actually uh, thought of it. Well, the point is that those rabbis would also come up to Jerusalem with their, with their disciples. And at feast season, you'd have many of these, these, these rabbis, these teachers of the law, many of them well-respected, others of them not so well-known and so on, but you'd have them congregate in Jerusalem. And they would more or less uh, gather to put their wares on display. In other words, if I'm a teacher and I want everybody to know what a great teacher I am, what do I do? Well, I come with my, with my disciples and my disciples sit down and I begin to teach. And it's a public thing. So people gather around. And it's very open. The rabbinical way of teaching uh, is uh, question and answer. It's challenging. One of, the, one of the most delightful experiences of my life, I, I, uh, I had always wanted to get into a rabbinical training school, a yeshiva. I mean, for years, as I went back to Israel a couple of times, I had done everything I could and I was unable to. You can get into it. There are, there are sort of... Uh, uh, the word is conservative, but, but in Jewish nomenclature it means the Jews who don't believe very much. You can get into their yeshiv, yeshivim. They're just little coffee houses. 
But I wanted to get into an Orthodox yeshiva. But they're very, very cloistered. They don't want you around. But I found one that was willing to let you go in. And uh, I, I was with a group uh, from a school where I was teaching, and we, we, it was on the West Bank. We went up to this yeshiva. A yeshiva is just the Hebrew word for rabbi, or a rabbinical training school. And we went into a balcony. It was kind of up high, and, and as balconies tend to be, I know. But uh, the point is, it was kind of it was kind of separate from everything else. And and the men, the rabbinical students, they were probably, I'm guessing, and I and and again, this is from memory. And like I said, somebody the other day, the older I get, the better my memory gets. I can remember things whether they happened or not these days. So I'm not sure. Uh, but this is the way I remember it: that that you had it was a large circular room. And all across the outside wall, there were these uh, bookshelves, high bookshelves, because they were lined with Talmudic volumes. And uh, throughout the room, there were scattered throughout the rooms these two-sided desks uh, where, where, uh, about this high. And one student would stand on one side, and the other would stand on the other. And there was, it was uh, tilted, and they would, they would be able to rest the, the Talmudic volume there. And most of what went on throughout the day was the rabbi, the chief, the teaching rabbi, would come in in the morning and he would posit a problem, some sort of, of conundrum, some sort of difficult uh, legal problem that had to do with tort law out of the Bible or it had to do with some fine point of doctrine. And he would, he would posit the problem and he'd say, all right, now you take one side and you take the other. And they'd just argue all day long. There's no teaching. There's no instruction. They just have to argue from the Talmud. And it was, the, it was just, I can't even describe to you what it was like. I mean, it was a cacophony of noise, all these voices. And if you have, and I, I, I certainly mean no hint of a slur here or anything like that, but if you've watched Jews argue, you know that their hands are all over the place and they're tearing their hair and they're carrying on. And you've got these two guys, you know, and, and, and the idea is you have to learn. To, in other words, you're assigned a position you have to defend, and you have to defend it from their Talmud, their sacred writings. We'll come in a, a little ways into the discussion, an hour or two into the discussion, and he'll say, okay, now switch sides. You argue that side, and you argue that side. And it really trains you in, in confrontational thinking. Paul was trained in this. Remember how often he anticipates his enemy's reply? Wherever grace did abound, uh, wherever sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And you can just hear somebody saying, well, good, we might as well sin. What? Shall we who are dead to sin remain any longer therein? Remember, Paul was trained in that, and he thinks that way. But at any rate, that's what these men would do. And you get this picture that, that men are answer, asking and answering questions. They're, they're, they're debates, and they're, they're not acrimonious debates. They're finer points of the law, and you've got people answering and, and, and so on. And here's Jesus right in the middle of it, just a boy. Uh, and, and I don't believe, frankly, I'm going to come back to it, I don't believe he's doing it in his deity. I, I mean, to be sure, he's never surrendered deity. But it seems to me that he's laid aside the independent exercise of that, and it's just this unbelievably precocious, intelligent, insightful young man who never, even, nobody ever even saw before, and he's able to keep up with everybody. A lot of people read verse 47, and they say that uh, all that heard him were astonished that he was, because we developed sort of a negative attitude, and probably rightly so, toward the Pharisees and so on, we say, well, he was being real, uh, he was blistering them, he was scolding them, he was getting after them and so on. There's really no hint of that in the text. No hint that he was being sassy. No hint that he was being disrespectful. He was just sitting there in the midst of these very, very heated and animated discussions. Jesus is able to participate as a, as, as, uh, with the best of them. Well, to come back to it, the point is simply this, that that's why evidently, the thing that caused Jesus to lose track of where he should be was the opportunity to just 
bathe himself in the Word of God. He got around these men who were students of the Old Testament. And uh, he, he was just so excited about it, he found himself involved in it. And, and, and the point is, he seems to have just been consumed with a desire for the Word of his Father. And I would suggest that, number one, that's what you and I ought to be consumed with. And I have a lot more that I could say here. I'm not going to do it. But just very quickly, let me say that this is true throughout Jesus' ministry. Uh, it is absolutely amazing to me how that Jesus depends upon the Word of God. He draws strength from it. He who is, in fact, God incarnate, when he is tempted by the devil, appeals to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy three times and clearly draws strength from, from the truth that he finds there. He submits himself to the Word of God. It's, it's a marvelous thing. And certainly if he was consumed by a desire for the Word of God and willing to submit himself to it, then you and I should as well. Now, I know that maybe seems sort of a strange thing to, to be preaching at a, at a college such as this because you're here, most of you, at least in significant part, because you do want to know the Word of God. You're already committed to that. Well, praise God, and, and, and that, that must continue. But let me just address one thing in this regard. I, I sense here at, at the Master's College sometimes a spirit that regards the Word of God almost as some sort of magical elixir where reading it, just the very act of reading it, somehow has some sort of magical effect on us or something. Folks, this is a book of truth. Now, just as words on a page, there is no merit here. There is no, there is no help here. You have got to understand this book. You have got to ingest it. You have got to learn. You know, I, Paul talks in, in, in Romans about a mind which is transformed. And, and it seems to me that what that means clearly, especially as you compare other Pauline references, uh, what that means clearly is that your mind is captured by the Word of God. And you find it virtually impossible to think in categories other than scriptural categories. That there isn't anything that can come up hardly, but what somehow you think in terms of what the Bible has taught you. And it's got to be up in, in, in the frontal lobe, you know, so oftentimes something comes in into our lives and we react in a way which later on we're horribly convicted about, we say, well, I know what the Bible says. I just wish I would have, I just wish I would have obeyed it. That, the point is that, that the Scripture has got to be so, so dominating in our mind that no matter what comes up, we are compelled to obey. And so I'm saying, I, it just seems to me, and I don't say that this is something where you get there and there you are. It's a lifetime. You give yourself to this over a lifetime. But Jesus, even as a boy, we find him in, just enraptured by the Word of God. And would to God it were so with us. Well, let me go a little further. Not only is it consumed with a, desire, uh, with a desire for the Word of God, but I want to go a little further. This is a very simple outline. In verse 48, it says, When his parents saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, uh, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Thus, uh, why hast thou thus dealt with us in the King James? Behold, your father and I have sought you sorrowing. Now, again, their hearts must have been absolutely uh, uh, panic-stricken as they looked for their boy, and, they, and Mary seems to suggest that, that Jesus has actually done something wrong, something wicked. But Jesus says in verse 49, he said unto them, How, Why is it that you sought me? Now, again, this can be confusing because people read that and, and, and it sounds like Jesus is saying, Why did you come back for me? Why did you just leave me alone? Just go back home and leave me alone. That's not the point at all. The point is, why did you look anywhere else? Why didn't you come here in the first place? Why would you look? Undoubtedly, they had friends and relatives in the, in the city, and they probably came back and checked with them. And so 
maybe well into the day, they finally say, well, let's go check the temple. Maybe he's over there. They come over to the temple, and they find him, and they remonstrate him. And Jesus says, why would you search anywhere else? Verse uh, 48 again, uh, verse 49, he says, knew ye not that I must be about my father's business. Now, actually, there's a textual problem here, and uh, not to get too deeply into textual problems, but some texts say that I must be at my father's house. Others say I must be about my father's business. Uh, Either way you take it, it comes out to precisely the same thing. Didn't you know that I would be consumed with what goes on at the temple? And uh, again, I think we can perhaps glean from this, this, that Jesus was not only consumed, if you don't mind, by a a desire for the Word of God, uh, but also by a a dedication to the work of His Father. Now, I'm going to take something out of this, and maybe I'm going a little too far, but I I really, I, I think it is perhaps here. Passover was a very important time of the year. Passover, of course, was when they remembered the, the night that the angel passed over the homes that had the blood sprinkled on the doorpost. Uh, Josephus tells us that during the Passover season, so many Jews would come to Jerusalem that the city was swelled to several times its normal size, and actually uh, the Romans were scared. See, and you can see how they might, by the way, because Passover is a, again, if, if, if here you are in the first century, Israel is living under the heel of Roman dominion. They have this, this, this season of the year called Passover where they remember when they were delivered from another Gentile power. So they're kind of feeling their oats anyway at that season of the year. It's trouble all the time. Plus, uh, and, and so the point is that the Romans were interested in finding out how many Jews came. And so in order to take some sort of a census as to how large the population was so they could know how to assign military force and so on, they asked, and this is about 30 years later, but it's the same time period, they asked the, the, the Jews, the priests, to count the number of lambs they, sl- they slew because the rabbis had enacted a, a policy by which everybody had, you had to have at least 10 worshipers to every lamb. There were so many lambs to be slain and so little time to do it. The book of Leviticus says that you have to slay the lamb between the evenings on Nisan 14. Now, between the evenings is between the time when the sun passes its apex and the time when it passes over the horizon. So the point is that you got all these lambs to slay in a period of about three or four hours, and it's all got to be done in the same place at the temple. And so it was, uh, it was and, and by the way, uh, Josephus tells us that they did count the lambs, and there were so, somewhere over 200,000 lambs slain. Now, some people discount that figure and say that it's, it's inflated, but however you take it, uh, and Josephus tells us about this marvelous uh, 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 assembly line almost that they had concocted where they, would, where they would do it very efficiently. But I say all that just to make the point that during Passover, there were literally, literally, Thousands of gallons of blood spilt. And, and that blood then would be deposited on the altar. And the, the Jews actually, or Herod, I'm sorry, in building the temple had taken this into account and, and, and had built an aqueduct system and a conduit system by which that was channeled off into a sewage drain and down toward the Dead Sea. But the point is, Jesus is coming of age. Every other time he has come to the temple, he hasn't been allowed to go in where the slaying was done. But now for the first time, he goes in and he watches as the Passover lamb is slain. Again, this is why I said before, I believe Jesus knows full well who he is. I believe he knows what he's come to do. And he watches as the Passover lamb is slain, realizing that the blood that's being spilt is only typical of his own. 
that every single animal that dies is just anticipation of the awful death he's going to suffer. And it seems to me that just as a boy, facing the realities of what life held for him, facing the realities of the awful death he was going to die, as he looked forward to that and had it rather dramatically uh, prefigured before his eyes, his response was that he was just overwhelmed by a desire to be about the business of his father. You know, in this regard, later on, 20 years later, Jesus began his public ministry. Early in his ministry, he ministered down in Judea and then uh, traveled up through Samaria to go to Galilee. And on the way through Samaria, he encountered a woman. Remember at the well? woman at Sychar? And you remember he hadn't eaten that day and, uh, and his disciples went into town to get food. And, and while they were gone, this woman came to the well and Jesus dealt with her and uh, uh, led her to a saving understanding of himself. Remember that? then sent her back into town to tell the others. And, and meanwhile, the disciples came back and they offered Jesus some meat, some food, some broma, and uh, the, just the, the, the Greek word for food, generically. And uh, Jesus wasn't hungry. And they said, well, what's going on here? Are you, are you, are you, did somebody bring you meat? Do you have meat that we don't know anything about? And Jesus said this. Now think about this. This is a John 4, verse 34. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Now, I'm absolutely persuaded that Jesus knew full well what it was going to mean, what it was going to cost, what was going to have to happen before he was going to be able to hang there between heaven and earth and cry out, the telestai, it's finished. He knew the infinite dimensions of the death he was going to have to suffer before he could say, but he said, my meat. Do you realize he was hungry? He dealt with that woman, and when the disciples came back, he was so thoroughly satisfied with doing the work of his father, that he wasn't hungry anymore. Now, I don't know anything about that. I need to confess to you. I don't know anything about that. But I'm saying that there's some sort of an ideal. If there, there, Here is Jesus who, who, in other words, such a passion for the work of God that it actually satisfies you physically. You know, Moses in the Old Testament was, was invited by God up into the mountain. And it says that he was there in the presence of God for 40 days and he did eat nothing and he did drink nothing. Now, that, that staggers me. I don't think it's essentially miraculous. I don't think there was any sort of miraculous work done on Moses' body. It's just that he so feasted on the very presence of God that he wasn't hungry. It satisfied his hunger and his thirst. And by the same token, if you don't mind a rather dim parallel, it seems that Jesus was actually physically satiated by means of doing the work of his Father. That's how desperately he was given to the work of his Father. And that's the point here. Coming back to it, he seems to he, when he says to his he seems to be consumed with a dedication to his father's work. He says to his parents, "Why didn't you come here? Don't you understand how desperately I need to be about my father's business?" And again, as much I could say about it, and, and some things I want to say, but I'm just going to leave it. I I'd say that if if we can draw that parallel between the young Jesus and and our and and, and yourselves, if you don't mind, in your passage of life, that that he was consumed by a desire for for the father's word, and it, it animated him. He was consumed by a dedication to his father's work, and uh, that was even in the face of difficulty. He knew he wasn't facing an easy, easy job. That's what I'm saying. And I, and I guess I have to stop and say this: that I think one of the most difficult things, and I'm going to I'm going to speak to a very specific part of the audience here, but I think one of the most difficult things faced by men who are looking toward ministry is the disintegration of idealism. You just have a lot of ideas about the pastorate or about whatever ministry it is you feel God. 
and, 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 and you think, boy, what a delight it'd be just to be involved in that ministry. And, and then as time goes by and you maybe get a foot a little bit in the ministry or you talk to people or you get close enough to it, that idealism begins to disintegrate. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, this is work. This is thankless work. Uh, this is, this is, this is, I mean, the ministry is in many ways a very, and I'm not whining here, I, I don't mean that, but I'm saying I think some young men come to that place and, and at about your stage of life and they, they begin to have very, very deep and grave second thoughts. And the point is, if there is a, if there is a, if, if there is a degree to which we can be consumed with dedication to the work of the Father as Jesus was, it'll take us past the realization that the ministry is a very, very difficult assignment. I, uh, I, I take tremendous delight in a, and I don't know how many times this verse comes back to me, a, a verse in John 15, which I think is, is horribly misused all, all too often. I'm going to be done. The verse is often used in regard to election. The verse says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And every single book you look under the doctrine of election, it'll have John 15, 16 there. That verse has nothing to do with election, folks. I mean, I suppose it does in some, in some horribly cosmic sense. But as far as what Jesus was saying, it simply cannot be put to that application. And I'm sorry if, if, if others are used that way here. But what Jesus is doing, that John 15 is the night before Jesus dies. He has told his disciples he's going away. They had signed on to this thing thinking he was going to establish a kingdom. After, you know, now he started to talk to them about taking up your cross and following me. He's talked about how he's going to go away and they're going to have to carry on in his absence. And they are, quite frankly, overwhelmed by their inability. They're saying, wait a minute, we, we, we can't do this. And, I, and again, I, there's a parallel. You see, we come to that place where the ministry all of a sudden becomes horribly foreboding, horribly intimidating. I can't do that. And Jesus turned to him and said, wait a minute, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Which is to say, if you tell me that you can't do it, then you're not insulting yourselves, you're insulting me. You didn't apply for this job. I chose you, and I put you together, and I know how you're made, and I know what your strengths are, and I know how to, uh, to undergird you. So, so, so as, as foreboding as perhaps the ministry may be, you didn't volunteer, God chose you, God set his call upon your life, and if, if, he, if he has indeed done that, called you and equipped you and excited in your heart a desire for that, then God is able to work in you not only to will but also to do of his good pleasure, right? But the point is, to come way back to it, there has to be such a... There is, there is sacrifice, sacrifice involved. There is cost involved. And unless a man is or a woman is consumed with the dedication of the work of the Father as Jesus was, I say it one more time, he knew what this was going to cost him, and yet he was anxious to be about it. But let me just finish here real quickly. Verse 50. It says, there's a remarkable verse here. It says that the parents understood not uh, the saying which he spake unto them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And this is remarkable, was subject to them. Now, depending on how you put the chronology together, folks, Jesus is going to be subject to his parents for somewhere between 18 to 21 years. Now, just imagine what that was like. Here is one who knows very well, A, that he is Messiah of Israel. He sees Israel floundering. He looks around him and he sees Israel and, and, and up to their necks in, in, uh, in, in disbelief and, and, and uh, mistaken notions about who their Messiah is and so on. And he's Messiah. Not only that, 
but he knows full well that he is God come in the flesh. And yet, what's he going to do for the next 21 years? He's going to sweep up the carpenter shop. See what I'm saying? He's going to obey his parents. He went back and was subject to his parents. You know why? Because he knew that was the Father's will. He had come to do the Father's will. As I told you earlier, I believe that Jesus knew who he was. He knew what his mission was, but he had no ideas to the timing. You see, what's going to happen, by the way, getting ahead of myself, he's going to go out later and be baptized by John, and as he comes up out of the waters of baptism, the Spirit of God is going to come upon him and fill him with what we call the theocratic anointing, and the Spirit is going to thrust him into his messianic ministry. But up until that time, Jesus had to simply just like you. You're sitting here, you don't know for sure what the Father has for you. There are things around you, you say, I'd, I'd rather be busy about it, I'd rather be out... But right now, God's purpose is for you. To, the stewardship He's put before you is training, and here you find yourself. And I'm telling you, it takes sometimes a rather gargantuan act of submission to the Father's will not to do the ministry. That's what Jesus did. See what I'm saying? He's going to sit there for 18, 21 years, 18 to 21 years, however you put your chronology, when, you know, the age of Jesus. And uh, He is going to be subject to His parents, knowing all that He knew, surrounded by all the disbelief and, and error that he, that he was surrounded by. And I'm sure he was an influence wherever he could be, just as you and I ought to be. But the father's will was that he remain subject to his parents. Now, here you have Jesus at this passage of his life. He is consumed by a desire for the word of his father. He's consumed by a dedication to the work of his father. And he is, if you don't mind, consumed by a devotion to the will of his father, even when it's difficult. If I can make the application one more time and we're done. That is simply, I think, that even though there is an awful lot about your life and the ministry that God has for you that you can't know, you may be struggling over some pretty important decisions about your life and so on, and there's no way to know that before it happens. I mean, you've got to wait upon the, the timing of God and so on. But I would suggest to you that you could measure your life according to these criteria. Is there in my heart a burning desire to know the Word of God? Do I, do, I, do I bathe myself in it and seek to understand it and fill my mind with it in such a way that it animates everything I do? Is there, is there in my heart a, 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 con, a consuming dedication to the work of the Father? Whatever else uh, He may bring my way, whatever responsibilities, whatever you know, family responsibilities and so on, I am, I am committed to this, that God has a work for me to do and I am going to be faithful to it. I'm going to equip myself for it under His power and I'm going to do it. Am I about the work of my father? Am I busy about my father's business? And then am I consumed by the will? And by that I mean even, even when, when, when I'd rather be doing something else, this is God's purpose for me, uh, am I willing to submit to it? I think that uh, the pattern, you know, the Bible talks about us being conformed to the image of Jesus. And, of course, again, that's, that's a work which will take only an eternity to accomplish. But in this life, I think it's, a, it's, it's perhaps a, a valid a goal ideal to set for ourselves to pattern ourselves after after our lord let's have a word of prayer and we'll be done our father in heaven again we thank you so much for your son and we thank you that he was willing to surrender the glory that was rightly his he never surrendered any of the deity but he set aside the reputation of deity and he took upon himself the form of a servant and he came to this earth and lived out a life of absolute sinlessness and in many ways the life which he lived is a pattern for us we realize that above all things, the, the, the death that he died is an atonement for us. But beyond that, we are, we are commanded to be compressed into his image. And I pray that perhaps these thoughts just out of this experience in Jesus' life might be helpful to us. 
Father, we thank you for the prospect of the weekend. We thank you for the prospect of the uh, vacation next week. And yet, Father, in the remainder of the semester, there is a stewardship set before us, student and staff and and, uh, faculty alike. And we'd ask that you might just steal us to that and help us to be faithful to the stewardship that is yet before us. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. We're done.